I think one of the worst is where the focus person blames other people for adverse events, uh, including errors. So when something goes wrong with the care, blaming other people for that, making them feel that it's their fault, uh, that they're incompetent. I, I put that as the, at the top of the uh, negative impact list because it is the most undermining of just culture. That's Joe Shapiro, a surgeon and manager in Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. If you Google her, you'll find her talking about peer support and what's needed to help doctors thrive in their work day to day. She's also director of the Centre for Professionalism and Peer Support, and it's the former part that she's written about for the BMJ this week. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. Recently, we've carried some Me Too stories, and that's one of the areas in which Joe has worked. But the definition of unprofessional behaviour is much more broad than that. In this discussion, she and I talked about what she thinks, beyond the illegal, are the most damaging behaviours seen around a hospital. We also covered perhaps the most vexing part of this, what needs to be done to set an environment which allows victims of unprofessional behaviour including those Me Too stories, to talk out about senior members of staff. We also talked about how she goes about confronting perpetrators about their behaviour, especially if they're unwilling to acknowledge what they've done. It's a really interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy it. So so I'm I'm a surgeon and I take care of patients, uh, both medically and surgically, who have oropharyngeal dysphagia, so trouble swallowing from the throat point of view. And I was the division chief for otolaryngology um, in the Department of Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital for 17 years until a couple years ago I stepped down to do more of this work. And we started the Center for Professionalism and Peer Support in 2008. Um, and the other role I had, um, I used to be the uh, Associate Director for Graduate Medical Education for Partners, which is Brigham and Women's, Mass General, and the Affiliate. So I'm, I've considered myself a, uh, a clinician, an educator, and, and, uh, um, and a leader. Yeah, you've got a big overview there. You've, you've, you've worked um, clinically in surgery, um, and I think, you know, uh, there is this stereotype that surgeons might be the worst at displaying some of these behaviours. Um, you've looked at education, and obviously, so you have an overview of people as they're starting their career, at their, they're at the sort of the bottom of the run. Um, and you've also overlooked uh, a department, you know, so you, you have a, this overview of all those sort of professional relationships. Um, why was it that you, you ended up... Um, becoming director of this Centre for Professionalism and Peer Support. You know, what, what, what kind of, why did you, did, why did that interest you particularly? I, I in my, all the other roles that, that I have had over time, I became increasingly aware of a gap in programs and organizational focus on actually serving the people who are doing the work, whether it's in clinical care, education, or research. And I was interested in working at the organizational level to try to develop programs and in the service of 
developing a culture that would support the people actually doing the work. Mm. Uh, th- those lack of, of plans and, and things, well, how did that manifest? What kind of, what did, what did you see there as a result of that? Well, I saw it just as I think we all saw and, and have seen an increasing amount of, of demands on everybody uh, who's working in healthcare, certainly very acutely on members of the, the healthcare team actually taking care of patients. Um, but from all, all, of, all points of view, regardless of what part of the mission we focused on, the, the responsibilities and the pressures and the stressors, I think, have been increasing. And there really hadn't been an explicit focus on what it does, what it takes to stay in this work, uh, to stay engaged and uh, uh, be connected with the joy of doing this work over a, a, a period of time in people's careers. And so it manifests in, I think, um, people becoming burnt out, uh, people leaving the profession, um, and or, or even staying in it and disengaging from the work in some fundamental way. Yeah, absolutely. And and we've actually just on a round table um, talking to, to people from around the NHS about, you know, what's going on kind of with morale and we have a problem with recruitment and retention in this country. Um, so this, uh, this definitely resonates um with with people's experience over here as well. Um, in your editorial, you say that um, you know you've had you've dealt with over four hundred complaints. Could you tell us a, a little bit about the work that you actually do now? What kind of complaints do you do you actually deal with? I, I first w- would like to just explain a bit about how we set the system up because I, I don't think that we have any. Um, uh, higher percentage of, of uh, professionalism concerns at our institution compared to others. Um, but what we recognized was that there really wasn't a place for people to go to um, to, to bring forward concerns. Uh, there wasn't a safe system. So we, we have great structures. We have uh, human resources. We have uh, medical staff bylaws and, and executive committee. It, we have the the standard structures that most institutions have, but they really weren't set up for people to come forward in a safe place to have their concerns heard. So we decided that in starting the center, we wanted to have a place for that to happen and to lower the threshold for people coming forward so that it didn't have to wait until there was some horrible thing that happened, a big incident, something egregious. But people could could discuss problems they were having uh, in, in, in professionalism or interpersonal uh, issues at, in the workplace, conflict management, and, 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 ha- and have us be able to help them manage that or if the, the conditions demanded, have us manage that for them. And so that's how I come to hear about concerns regarding either patterns of unprofessional behavior or egregious, of course, egregious episodes need need to be reported as well. As far as the kinds of things that people come forward, um, I would say many of them are defined by the Joint Commission as behaviors that undermine a culture of safety. 
there are ways uh, the person might have, the, the we'll call the person about whom the concerns are reported, the focus person, that the focus person who thinks he or she is doing a wonderful job and they're doing what they do because they think it's right is in fact behaving in a way that's impacting, really negatively impacting the healthcare team members, uh, which is correlated with with decreased well-being and uh, increased burnout. And the behaviors have a secondary effect of actually being safety concerns regarding patient safety and quality. And so the kinds of behaviors that the Joint Commission laid out would be things like um, demeaning, uh, using tone or content or body language to indicate that you don't respect the person who's either asking you a question or trying to give you some information. Um, It can be intimidating behavior that would be um, using um, either threats or sarcasm or um, uh, um, raising voice, those sorts of things that really make people feel unsafe to to raise concerns or to ask questions. So there that's the most common. It includes we have different we we keep everything in a database in terms of categorizing concerns that have come forward and so they range from that's the most common is, is what I've described to you um, there's uh, con- there have been complaints about sexual harassment um, about uh, lack of empathy in patient communications the most common are around how they're communicating with the healthcare team mm. that's interesting because um, given the current climate out there I think I wonder if people reading this would expect, you to be dealing with a lot of sexual harassment, things like you know the 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 Me Too stories that that are are everywhere on social media and things now. Well, we have had some. There's no question. I think that um, you know I can't. I don't think there's a, a study that looks at sexual harassment uh, very thoroughly. A, a study that looks thoroughly at sexual sexual harassment, particularly in in healthcare, we certainly have a lot of anecdotes that are out there with uh, case law and um, and 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 things in in the some things in the media, but um, I don't know of a systematic look at this, so I can't tell you, you know, what our prevalence is, but I can say that. Um, you know, we absolutely have we have handled concerns around that. It's just not the most common problem that we hear. Sure. Um, now, could you tell us a little bit about the the kind of people that um, this behavior is kind of manifesting in? Are you, do you know, do you see any patterns, or, or does it seem to be kind of equally spread across the board? Well, I would say that. On the whole, this is not a gendered or uh, a discipline-specific or even specialty-specific problem. We have seen this across the board. So it's not just physicians. Uh, it can be anybody on the healthcare team. It's not just men. It's not just surgeons. It's not just any one race um, or what have you. So I, I, we've heard a wide range. A wide range of concerns for, from uh, on the part of, uh, of of a wide range of of people. That said, um, I think certainly in the harassment, um, and this goes along with what's known in society generally, the sexual harassment um, that we've heard about comes from men harassing women. That's the most common that we hear by far. 
Um, as far as the other complaints around unprofessional behaviors, around intimidation, and I guess bullying is a is a, a good lay term for that. Um, that again, it, it you know, m- more men on average, but absolutely women as well. No question about it. Um, as you mentioned, um, in some kinds of behaviors, more overt surgery is overrepresented. Um, but that said, the, the kinds of concerns that come forward about non-surgeon um, physicians are can be equally um, concerning and disruptive, but they're less obvious. So not as much yelling on other people's parts and more uh, more subtle ways of being either hypercritical or demeaning. Yeah, interesting. Now, um, there's a point you made in your um, editorial, and I think everyone should go and read that. Um, But the point that I was slightly surprised by was that rarely met anyone whose intent was to demoralize or intimidate. And I think I was surprised by that, because if I've seen this behavior manifesting, I mean, not in a healthcare setting, but elsewhere, um, that was kind of explicitly what it was about. So I was just wondering... um, yeah, what what do you think is actually motivating these behaviors? So I think the motivation for the behaviors uh, is actually can be rather positive. Um, it's a bit misguided, but it it can be positive. So, um, and I and I I I have deep experience in 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 understanding the motivations of these actions, because when we do give feedback, one of the uh, uh, tenets of feedback is to be clear about what the behaviors are, but also then elicit their frame, the focus person's frame on, you know, how do you see this? And so I, I do have a, a, a lot of experience in listening to and trying to understand people's motivations. So I would say what, that universally people think they're doing the right thing. They, they, they don't wake up and say, I think I'd like to come in and, I don't know, maybe just make one of the nurses cry. Or, um, uh, you know, make the resident feel so um, uh, incompetent that, uh, that, that he leaves the, the specialty. Uh, they may have that impact, and that's where we go in terms of, uh, of this, is that it's really not about your intent, it's about your impact. But the intention is to do good work. And the, where they're misguided is they feel that in order to, for example, uh, get the kind of patient care they want, that they need to bully people into doing things their way, um, that they are the ones who have the patient's best interest in mind, and that other members of the healthcare team don't. And so um, you often find people very righteous about defending their behavior that because there's, they think it's getting to the end that they, that we all want to get to, which is excellent patient care. So that that's one motivation. I think the other is that, interestingly, some of the people who behave the worst are people who tend to see themselves as victims. They they really don't have a sense of the harm that they do. And in fact, they often feel harmed. Um, Now, this is a small percent of the people that we see, but I think we've all come into contact with those folks. They really have a belief system about the world that puts them at the victim center and everybody else is as kind of out to to get thwart them from doing the kind of good work that they want to do. So, uh, but again, it's it's not a, an intent to to do bad things to other people. It's certainly the impact. Thank you. Um, Can I elaborate on that? Yeah, of course. 
So for, uh, uh, another example of that is with uh, with sexual harassment. So when I the, the most common sexual harassment kinds of concerns that that um, that I've heard have been where, for example, an attending physician um, is repeatedly making comments to, let's say, for example, the women residents um, or maybe the nurses about what they're wearing, how they look, um, who are they dating, what did they do on the weekend, very, very focused on on the person being being a woman. And when when we do give them feedback about this, um, the the and tell them this is the impact it's having on on people their 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 frame for why they're doing it is you know, the first thing they say is oh my goodness i'm i'm married i i'm not interested in you know in 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 sexually or anything in, in, in with anybody at work um i'm just trying to be friendly i'm just trying to um uh bring um bring personal life into the work so it's not just so uh, workplace focused. And and they really believe that. I mean, it's true. That's, that is what they're intending to do. Of course, I'm not saying that people don't have other unconscious motivations. I think some people do. They can use their power in a way that's very demeaning. Um, and that's true with harass- sexual harassment or harassment of any group, um, bullying, any kind of behavior. I think there are people who are unconsciously, you know, really after power. I, I don't think that's a, a, a very, uh, um, you know, innovative statement for me to make. I, it's, it's, I think it's pretty well known. But on, on their on the conscious level, um, they just they're not seeing this. Um, they they don't they aren't recognizing it. So our answer to that frame is it's absolutely not about your intent. It's about your impact. That's all that matters. That's interesting, and we'll get to um, a little bit about tackling these behaviours in a moment. But I just wondered, um, in your experience, I wonder if you have a, I don't know, a hierarchy of behaviour maybe? I mean, if we put sort of criminal and and illegal behaviour of sexual assault or sexual harassment aside, but in terms of, you know, the impact on on staff, uh, on morale around the... uh, uh, from the hospital or, or whatever, you know, is there a hierarchy of, of behaviors? Well, I, I hadn't thought of it as a hierarchy uh, as much as um, looking at when people come forward with concerns is trying to understand how significant the impact of the behaviors are. So I, if, if I would frame the question as, are there certain kinds of behaviors that are particularly negatively impactful? I could say that I think one of the worst, and again, as you say, putting aside um, illegal behaviors, I think one of the worst is where the focused person blames other people for adverse events, uh, including errors. So when something goes wrong with the care, blaming other people for that, making them feel that it's their fault, uh, that they're incompetent. I, I put that as the, at the top of the uh, a negative impact list because it is the most undermining of just culture. And we depend on a just culture to advance safety and quality in our institutions. And it's terribly undermining if we let people blame, shame and blame mm. others. I just wonder if you could uh, expand on that a little bit. I mean, what kind of, you know, 
How is it undermining it? And what kind of uh, impact does it have on other people's ability to work? So if, if, if something goes wrong uh, with a patient, adverse event as defined by not the result of the patient's uh, um, medical condition, but is the result inadvertently of the care that we've given. Um, so adverse events happen and they can, those adverse events can um, be sometimes due to errors, sometimes not, but it, they're always due to the treatment essentially or how we've, how we've uh, worked with the patient versus that their underlying illness. Um, so these things happen and what we understand um, is that it's incredibly important for the institution to be able to learn from the event to prevent it happening in the future. So the culture that I grew up in and everybody in my generation who was trained was the way to make the system safer is to blame the individual. So if you did something wrong or perceived that you were the fault at fault, you would have to own up to it, and um, and you would, which is fine, uh, but you would be humiliated. Um, this was something that would happen sometimes publicly, it, meaning in in a morbidity and mortality conference. But the idea was that that if we made sure people understood how horrible the error was, that then bad things wouldn't happen again. Um, that's what we thought. That's why we all did shame and blame. And in fact, society still does shame and blame, as you know, not just in the medical profession. It's very much a human need to find the fall person to, um, and, and to punish that person. It feels right. Yeah. In fact, I think you're all dealing with that now in your country. Yes. And, and yeah. that the problem with shame and blame is, is twofold. First of all, it is so undermining of a chance to learn from the event. It 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 tells people um, that they shouldn't they should be afraid of reporting because if you witness your colleague being treated that way or you're treated that way, what is the chance that you're going to call out uh, an, a mistake or admit to something or or just point out that something could have been done better when you know that you're not going to be fairly treated? So that's one. So it decreases reporting. So then that institution, uh, the group, does not have a chance to learn from it. And the second is we know it actually can have a devastating effect on the um, well-being of the of the clinician uh, and and I should say because we use the word clinician, but of the healthcare provider who's being blamed, and it can lead to really awful things, including suicide. It's really that power could be that powerful, and so it's so um, it's so undermining of a safety culture that I feel of all the behaviors that we that we hear, this is the one that we have to be strongest about. Um, about defending against or preventing. So when I when we talk about professional or um, behavior, um, it, we should think about this professionalism of institutions too, and not just individuals. And um, and so when I talked about like the worst thing on the hierarchy of of behaviors is when we blame um, individual healthcare professionals for for human error. Um, I feel like that. That holds for institutions too, um, and society. And the moment that we start, you know, that we do this blaming, not just on a, you know, uh, one uh, nurse is blaming another nurse or what have you, but if it, you know, if it's the the 
our, our, our regulatory groups are blaming individuals for human error, then to me that's unprofessional behavior on the part of our our governing bodies or our, or maybe our institution, whatever it is. And so I think we should think about professionalism more broadly than just in the behavior of individuals and especially around uh, adverse events and medical errors. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can see some of that happening over here. As you say, we've um, had a case recently with um, Dr. Bawa Garba where that it's sort of throwing into relief the, the, the issues that you talk about. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting now, because in your article you actually say that one of the ways in which we rationalize um, and therefore excuse some of these behaviors is because of systems problems um, or pressures um, but you know as I mentioned at the beginning we we have recently done a roundtable about um, the NHS as a good employer and and there I think it became clear that that you know pressure a huge amount of pressure um, on individuals working in the system does at the at the least stop the sort of niceties or reduce the niceties um, between people but you know at the worst would would exacerbate um, some of those behaviors so I it's interesting when you think about the relationship between unprofessional behaviors and um, uh, and systems um, what what I would say is that, what you said is true, so that people who are more stressed um, and uh, and in, in every which way, which most of us are experiencing because of the uh, production pressures and and the measurement pressures um, and all sorts of of other societal um, and external regulatory pressures that we have when we're stressed, we're more likely to behave in a way that is not up to even our own standards, uh, but our, our community standards of professional behavior. No question about that. Um, and I think as a profession, this we absolutely have to look at this for for many reasons, but partly because of the, the idea of we, we need to sustain our well-being as individuals um, in the system because we need to stay working at our jobs uh, in our in a profession that is so wonderful, and we need to be able to do so in a way that's that's compassionate to the people that we that we're treating. Uh, um, the other side of the unprofessional behaviors is that they themselves cause uh, both um, clinician, sorry, both healthcare professional uh, um, burnout and other measures of the opposite of well-being. So in and of themselves, they are part of the cause of other people's issues. Um, and for example, shame and blame it, it causes problems with the, with the well-being, the healthcare professionals, and it, it, it's, it's bad for the safety system and the safety culture. So it, they're connected. What I don't, what I think that but I was the point I was trying to make in the in the um, in the article was that we're all under stress and we're all under pressure. Our obligation is still to behave professionally. That does not mean it's our obligation to be perfect and also be error free because we know that we can't be error free. Humans make errors. So for us to, as a society or as a profession, to expect us to be error-free, that's that's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is that we've got to be able to manage our own 
personal behavior to, and be, to be personally accountable for our choices that we make and the way we behave so that we can create a culture and a, 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 of safety. Um, and we should also be looking at the systems that set us up to either succeed and do right by our patients or that, that actually undermine our ability to give safe care. So it's not, it's not an either or. It's a yes mm. and. Um, okay, if we start to sort of think about tackling some of these things, um, and if we actually stick talking about systems for a moment, um, you know, at the heart of a lot of this is sort of power differentials between people. Um, uh, and that, those power differentials um, can make it really hard for, for the victims of, of these behaviours to speak out for fear of kind of professional consequences. Um, I just wonder, how do you begin to navigate that and begin to create a, a, a space where it is possible to, for, for people to speak out and, and challenge them? Well, I think it is really challenging to do that. And that's why at our hospital, we, we, we changed the system that we had because we found that people weren't bringing forward concerns. So we didn't have the opportunity to give people a chance to remediate and, uh, and change their behavior. Um, and we continued to tolerate uh, behavior that really was undermining uh, many people on the healthcare team. And so uh, being in very mindful of the fear factor that prevents people from coming forward, we set up a system where if you want to come forward with concern, we lowered the threshold for doing that. So people just contact me and they say, can I just talk to you about something that happened or some concerns that I have? And I'm always open to hearing anything. I'm not making them fill out a um, file a formal complaint or even put down in, in email what's bothering them. I'm just inviting them to come and speak if, if they'd like. So it's just a conversation to start with. And then the determination of whether to move forward with this really is in the hands of the people, the reporters, the people coming forward with concerns. And it's possible that they might say, and, and by the way, I, this is not true of illegal behavior because illegal behavior puts me under an obligation to do something more than just mm, listen. Course, but, yeah. but for not illegal behavior, um, uh, I, what I can't, what I can say is that that my utmost concern is for their um, well-being and and to prevent any type of retaliation. So let's talk about um, what we could do to bring the concern forward that might protect you. And and I'll tell you that most people uh, will give me permission to move forward. Um, and so the, the the kinds of protections that we put in place are first of all I I don't use the name of the the people I interview, and what I say is that I'm going I ask them may I talk to other people um, if you give me other people's names who might have witnessed these behaviors or might have experienced them and I might get anywhere you know it depends on the the level of concern it might be two people it might be ten um, and I interview each one separately with the caveats that they don't discuss this um, and that we, you know, so it's, it's a respectful process. Um, and 
I can learn enough about the behaviors so that when we do give, when I and the person's supervisory physician give feedback to that focused person, I can de-identify the, the specifics. I'm not using names. I'm not using this incident on Tuesday with this patient and this, you know, nurse. I'm, I'm saying these are behaviors and I'm very specific about them, but without being content or context specific. Um, and that enables me to us to be able to give feedback that someone could act on in a, in a positive way for change without knowing who said what. So that's one protection. The other protection against retaliation is that we're very specific and explicit with when we do give the feedback to the focus person, that we have a very stringent anti-retaliation policy. And what that means is that we expect them not to speak to anybody at work about these concerns. Because if they even innocently come up to someone and ask, hey, do you have any problems working with me? That could be interpreted to anybody as retaliatory and retaliation is in the eyes of the beholder. And so we're very, very, very clear about that. Um, and we, if anyone does do anything retaliatory, and we tell this to anybody who's we're interviewing, I always say, you know, if you, you know, experience anything that it, you feel concerned about, let me know immediately. We would act immediately on that, and and be much, um, I would say, harsher on the focus person than we would have been on their original behavior because we can't have right. retaliation. We can't. We cannot allow it. Um. I mean, that's interesting, and it does sound like you're 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 very involved, and you you kind of coordinate the process quite closely. Um, I mean, I wonder what happens because, um, as you said earlier on, that people might not recognise this behaviour in themselves, or they might feel like they're they're the actual victims in this. And when you go and have that initial, you know, you initially confront someone about about the behaviours, um, and they flat out say, well, no, that's not true, or no, I'm the victim in this. Uh, how do you deal with that, and how do you kind of negotiate that that situation? It, it's a very important question, and, and I would say that um, it, it very much depends on the specific context of how they're framing this. But um, to your particular question, if their frame is, this isn't me, it's everybody else, it's not true, or those sorts of things, in other words, deny and defend, um, I, what I, I might say something like, if they're saying, this is, uh, this is all false accusations, um, what I would say is, uh, the way we got this data is by talking to a fair amount of people. If it was one person um, and no one else validated these concerns, we probably wouldn't be sitting here. Again, you know, obviously not not with egregious behavior, but with the kinds of the, uh, behaviors we're talking about. Um, but that, you know, that we've had the opportunity to really listen to multiple different people and many people are experiencing you in this way. And these behaviors have been seen, witnessed, and felt by multiple people. And so it's really, we're not here to negotiate or to, to really uh, have in question whether you are doing these behaviors because you are. It's really more about how are you going to, um, how are you going to process this information that we're giving you? So that's one thing. Um, the other is that they may bring up 
their point of view that has to do with, well, I, you know, I feel that um, I am being wronged. You're just doing this because I'm, you know, so-and-so or I'm of this group, uh, this gender, what have you. And our answer to that has to be, and it always is, is we, we have a very fair process. And this is what we would do for anybody with these behaviors. And we do it, you know, frequently. And so it may feel to you like we're just singling you out, but actually we've done this with a lot of people because that's what we do and that's what we're committed to. So I, I have a, if you were, some kind of um, reasonable answer to whatever that person's frame is. Now, at the end of the conversation, they may disagree. They may still feel like, you know, we're the bad guys and, you know, this isn't their fault and we're just out to get them or what, whatever their frame is. And so depending on the situation, what we would do at the end of the meeting is say, look, it sounds like you're, you're not really owning any of this or uh, having, you know, uh, agreeing that there's, that you have a part in this. And really that's up to you what you do with this information. But what we can tell you is, we want the, beha- the behaviors need to stop. So it may be worth your looking at this from a different angle, but that's up to you. What's up to us is we have to uh, uphold the standards of our community and we're going to be watching and very specifically monitoring. And we explain how we do that to make sure that your behaviors change. No, we're very supportive of your changing them. If you decide not to, that's your decision, but then we will need to react to that. Okay. So you sort of very clearly state the consequence and, and, and things. I mean, it sounds like it's almost like a sort of parenting mode. Yes, it is. There is that in it. And I do, I do want to make it clear that there are times when the concerns are much lower level, like they either haven't been gone, uh, the behaviors haven't been going on for a long time, or nobody's given that person feedback ever. You know, this is the first chance, uh, first, first time that they're getting the feedback. And in which case, it's going to be much, much less in, in, an intense response uh, uh, from us as far as, and don't ever do this again, or you're going to be fired. Um, it's much more of a, you know, a conversation of look, hey, you probably don't realize this is how your behavior is impacting people. You know, it's real. And then, you know, people do, will, many will take it in. They will, you know, they're not thrilled to hear it, of course. And we're, you know, we're very respectful about how we present the data. But, you know, it's hard to hear and we acknowledge that. And, and we're really partnering with them on trying to figure out a way forward for them so that they can change their behavior because we actually do care about that person. We want them to succeed. You know, our goal and our motivation isn't to get people in trouble. It's to have a respectful work environment. And, and this is in the way of that. So how can you change your behavior so that you are cre- helping create a respectful work environment? Mm. I mean, it sounds like you've got... Um you know, through all of this, but but ultimately, you've you've got um, quite a lot of of power to actually tackle these, um, which obviously you you've had to have been granted by your your organisation, and I mean I think it's obvious that oh sorry it's it's easy for for a lot of organisations to turn a, a blind eye to poor behaviour. I mean, especially if it's from a a member of staff who they consider to be particularly valuable for the organization and how did you persuade yours that that bullying and 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 poor behavior is actually really worth tackling and they need to to you know set up um 
and, and create the structures like like you have in order to tackle it? So I'm going to answer that in, in two parts. I think the first is that actually I have zero power. Um, uh, I have no formal power in this role. So I don't hire and fire any of these people. I have nothing to do with that. And the it, the, this work is always done in partnership with the people who do have that power. So in our hospital system, for example, our healthcare organization, typically those people would be the chairs or the chiefs of the clinical departments, which would also include, of the departments, I should say, which include research, education, and and uh, clinical care. So when when we're deciding, you know, as an organization, how we want to respond to the concerns, which I've assessed, then that's, uh, it is not actually my decision. I mean, I obviously weigh in, but what I'm doing is I'm partnering with the people in authority to help them do the right thing by the institution. So I'm, we are completely, and I am completely dependent on that partnership. And because it's, it, it is, those people are the ones who actually have to they have to back up the message. They have to, often I'm delivering it with them. Sometimes they ask me to do it myself, but more often than not, we're, we're doing it in the room together. Um, but they have to be clear that, that they won't tolerate it. It, it. I could say I won't tolerate it, but I, I have, you know, nobody cares what I'll tolerate, nor should they really. It's, I don't, I'm not in their particular microculture, if you will. So that's one thing. Um, do you think the fact that you are kind of almost sort of quasi-independent of um, the chairs and, and, you know, the people who recruited these people, th- that gives you a, a distant or a, an outsider sort of space, so it makes your job easier or perhaps, you know, less political, less difficult to, to start tackling these things? I do think so. I really do. I, I, I tried to set things up that way. Um, I think that it's less threatening to people in power um, is one thing. Um, I think where it's a problem is if there is a conflict between what um, we think is the right thing to do and what may be in the immediate interest of, of someone in leadership, um, that can be, that's hard because, I mean, and it requires a lot of, I'd say, to, to use the power word, power of persuasion. Um, and it's not a, a threat persuasion because there's nothing to threaten anybody with. But but the, the moral argument is um, this, yes, we can see why you don't want to hold Dr. So-and-so accountable, but here, here's what you're, what you're now allowing, um, in not being willing to do that. And so I have to say that there are times when I do wish I could tell people what to do. (laughs) I'm a surgeon after all. Um, but, (laughs) but, but, but I do, but to your point, I think that, um, you know, I can't, and and I shouldn't be able to, in a sense, um, because really they need to come along, and and they need to, they really do need to buy in into this, um, and it's hard. It, it's sometimes very, very hard for people in leadership to see the the destruction um, that is happening around them because they're really just seeing the positive of that person. They're either the positive in terms of money that they bring in, their stature, or just the relationship that they have with their chair or chief that, as you said, they might have recruited them. They might be somebody they, they just personally care about. And, you know, of course, 
you know, that's hard. It's, it is hard. And, and I, I, I do a fair amount of uh, informal coaching of people in leadership to be able to come to terms with this and to have difficult conversations. And that, you know, that's part of my job and I should be able to do that because I know as a division chief, it's, this is tough. It's tough to have these conversations and it's also tough to hold people accountable. And that brings us back to the previous question about how did you actually persuade them that this was a good idea to do in the first place? That, that I basically made the case that unprofessional behavior was, is, is extremely costly. And it's, a, it's costly um, on many, many levels, m- morally and financially. And, and I, I laid out the kinds of, without the actual dollars, I laid out the, the ways unprofessional behavior negatively impacts the institution. So they would include the well-being of the people who work there, which is a huge issue. If people leave, you know, retention, recruitment, morale, productivity – that it also uh, often is a risk to actual patient safety and quality, and we all know we care about that, right? You don't have to monetize that, that nobody wants to think that we're allowing something to go on that could actually impact patient safety and quality. Um, And other things such as, you know, institutional reputation, uh, lawsuits, both employment, malpractice, et cetera. So I I made the case of how a, a culture of trust and respect on the positive side is actually a huge win for the for the organization, and um, the converse is not doing this is quite costly. And the other argument I made was that that we have regulatory groups that feel this way. Um, now, when I first proposed the center, we didn't actually have these groups who were weighing in on it. Some of them were, but many, but they have since. But the argument can be made now. First of all, society is accepting this less. I mean, certainly if you look at behavior around the harassment, that's true, right? Society writ large outside of medicine. Um, but we have medical regulatory groups, Joint Commission for here that accredits most of our, not all, but most of the, the U.S. hospitals. We have the uh, um, ACGME that accredits the graduate uh, medical education training programs, the American Board of Medical Specialties. This is a competence that's required for all the board diplomates for every specialty. Um, there's the, um, I mean, it's on and on, really. Society and our regulatory agencies have said they care about this. Uh, the learning environment for our trainees and our students, the the the, um, the group that oversees the medical student education has looked at this as a, an increasing issue that they want to focus on. So I said, you know, even if we didn't think it was important, which of course the leaders did, I mean, I was, you know, I, I, I don't think I was telling them anything they didn't know, but I was putting it together in a way that said, we actually have to resource this. This is not something we can sort of continue to say, oh, we're handling it because we're, we're not. And, and most healthcare organizations weren't at that time really looking at this saying, let's really look at this and, and let's work towards a culture of, of, of trust in our organization. So you've been listening to Joe Shapiro talk about professionalism and tackling unprofessional behavior. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back later in the week asking why has there been a spike in the death rate in the early part of 2018 and why the government should be investigating that. As always, subscribe. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're everywhere now, so no excuses.
You can also find our full back catalogue, that's bmj.com slash podcasts. There you'll find over five years of content, all available for free. So go and check that out. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.